It's 1200 BC. Your name is Waterdeer, and you are a Mayan in the pre-classic era from the village that would one day be known as Kaminalhuyu. It's a big day. You're setting off on a trade mission with the surrounding villages. You don't know that it's the pre-classic, and the name Mayan would have meant nothing to you at the time, but eventually, you would be lumped in with other people from this area and assigned that moniker by much later generations. You live in the Pacific Coast region in present-day Guatemala, and man, is that a great place to live. The farming is bountiful, the wildlife and other resources are abundant, and the weather is pleasantly warm. You have with you some animal pelts, seashells, some bits of unfinished serpentine stone, and a sampling of the corn you are willing to trade. But the star of the show is that chunk of obsidian you happened upon not long ago. That little baby's going to fetch you some serious wealth if you can find someone with enough goods to trade for it. Everybody wants obsidian, and it was truly a remarkable substance. One decent core of obsidian could make several blades and darts that could be resharpened many times over by flecking off bits of it with a hard stone. The core you have is on the smaller side, but you don't have to be much of a salesman when it comes to something that is in such great demand. Your status will improve in your home village if you can offload the obsidian for a good price, and status is becoming more and more important these days. You see, with the food surpluses from farming came the advent of trade, and with the advent of trade came the creation of wealth, and just like today, where wealth goes, power soon follows. That power has begun to reveal itself in the social classes that are starting to develop, and you live in a village of about a thousand people, so stratified classes are perceptible. You smile to yourself as you think of the time you listened to an elder recount the ways of the simpler times when the only distinctions were basically ruler and rabble. If you weren't the ruler, well, you were part of the rabble. Ah, the old days. So glad to be right here, right now, where you could at least have some say in your social standing. The small bag of corn you carry is representative of the larger amount you have to trade back home. There's no sense in trying to carry all that through the winding jungle if you didn't have a promise of purchase from someone. Sure would be nice to have a wheeled carriage pulled by some horses or oxen. That would really help move the large vessels of trade corn, of which you seem to have more and more every year. Except you don't know anything about carriages because they don't exist. And horse and oxen? Never heard of them. They just don't exist where you live. The wheel? Well... Maybe in another 900 years or so, but for now, all you have is the Barefoot Express. Alright, it's time to get focused. You're almost to the first village. You can smell the fragrance of burning wood, and you get that feeling that today is going to be your lucky day. There's a clearing ahead, and the thatched huts look like tiny dots in the distance. In one swift and soundless motion, five muscular warriors armed with spears, adorned with bright plumage, demand to know who you are. You fearfully speak, in your best version of that particular tribe's dialect, that you are a trader from a nearby village only seeking to do business. One of the warriors recognizes you from a previous trade mission, and with the burning intensity only a warrior could project, he looks you directly in the eyes, nods in the direction of the village, and allows you to continue. If you had a tail, it would be firmly between your legs right now as you hustle the rest of the way to the village, all the while being trailed by two of the warriors. You're no chump, but that could have ended really bad, really fast. You think to yourself, I guess that's just life as a trader in the pre-classic Mesoamerica. Either you have the stomach for business, 
or you don't. As you enter the village, the inhabitants clamor to see what you have to offer. You'll feel them out and save that obsidian for last. It's for serious bidders only. You smile in smug satisfaction and think surely this is the greatest time to be alive. Starting about 20,000 BC, during the last glacial maximum, that's a $10 word for ice age, people from southeast Siberia started crossing the Bering Land Bridge, known as Beringia, and settled what we call the Americas. When I used to hear the term land bridge, I would always envision this narrow, treacherous strip of land that some pioneering group would have to cautiously shuffle across in single file during a blinding ice storm. What I have learned is that the Bering Land Bridge was actually not a bad place to live, and much larger than I had believed. It was covered in mammoth steppe, which meant it was cold and dry, but with abundant plant life such as wild grasses, herbs, willow shrubs, and maybe an occasional tree. The animals available for hunting or scavenging would be mammoth, bison, and horses, so the menu's not bad. Honestly, I could see going into one of today's trendy little restaurants and ordering a bowl of bison stew with wild grasses and herbs for like 13 bucks or something. At its widest, the land bridge stretched nearly 700 miles, which is roughly a one-way trip from Chicago, Illinois to Tulsa, Oklahoma, so definitely not narrow or rickety as I had once believed. The people that lived there were likely the forerunners of the Yupik people, a member of the Eskimo Loot family, but they would be very small in number and you would likely not run into them much as you cross the land bridge. Fun fact, the name Yupik is translated as yuck, meaning person, and pick, meaning real or genuine. I just love a people that have a strong sense of themselves. We may not know who you turkeys are, but we're the real people over here. They must have just been delightful at dinner parties. Anyhow, our southeastern Siberian peoples crossed Beringia in hopes of something better than Mammoth Steppe, and as they began to colonize the Americas, I would bet what they found here far exceeded even their wildest hopes. So how do we know where these people came from, that their origins were Siberia? Well, we know this in three ways. One, thanks to genetics and through DNA sampling, we're able to prove a common ancestry between today's native peoples of the Americas and today's native southeastern Siberian people. Thanks to linguistics, we can establish core similarities in language between these two peoples as well. And thanks to archaeology, we can demonstrate the same tool styles during the same time period, approximately 10,000 BC, for both Southeast Siberians and native peoples in the Americas. Do you remember the term for this condition from the last episode? If you said horizons, give yourself 10 points. Given this triangulation of traits, there is little doubt in scholarly communities about the origins of the Maya and other native peoples in the Americas. Once these people started to notice that certain plants grew well in certain areas, and they made mental notes of it, and counted on those plants during the settlement phase, after some time, a clever person probably thought to themselves, we're lucky this is here, but what if we purposely grew large amounts of these plants so that we didn't have to rely on luck, and we'll know that they're here because we're the ones who planted them. Ideas and experiments like this would go on for hundreds or thousands of years, and each successive generation hopefully advancing the cause ever so slightly through a variety of means, such as learning better growing methods, learning better locations to grow specific foods, and understanding the importance of not exhausting the soil with overplanting. 
By 2000 BC, our friends began to develop agriculture and transition to a sedentary agrarian society. Now, the first few times I heard someone call people sedentary, I thought they were meaning lazy or uninspired. But that's not what it means. In this context, sedentary essentially means staying put for a long period of time. So they weren't wandering anymore or hunter-gathering as much. To clarify a little further, that shift doesn't happen all at once, but over a long period of time. And it's not like Jade Jaguar woke up one morning and posted on his Facebook account, you know, I'm tired of this hunter-gatherer stuff. I'm finally making the switch to an agrarian lifestyle. New year, new me. Hashtag goals. No, we live in an analog world, not a digital world, as our almost oppressive level of technology would have you believe. These changes take time, slowly evolve, and have their ebb and flow. Maybe you hunt more this year than last. Maybe you're farming more next year because of your excessive hunting last year. The point is, hunting and gathering, as well as farming, coexist as tools of survival, and early people were pragmatic in their use, mainly because it was literally a life-or-death scenario. But again, all the while, hunting and gathering is still happening because 1. They needed to eat until farming could be done effectively on a large scale, and 2. There's a lot of food to be eaten in the jungle, rivers, oceans, and plains. It's plentiful and accessible, so why the heck not? Over time, this adoption of sedentism led to the development of society and culture. Equally important, economic trade developed due to surpluses of food, due to the exceptionally fertile soil and growing conditions of the coastal plain where the Maya first settled. In fact, food surplus, likely corn or maize if you prefer, were the first trade goods offered by the Maya. This food surplus also led to more people having more time to devote to other life activities like tool-making, artistry, public works, astronomy, religion, politics, you know, all the nuts and bolts of an advanced society. This led to advances in farming, which led to more surpluses, which led to, well, by now you probably get it, that became a cycle that would propel the Maya to become one of the greatest civilizations in Mesoamerica. The Maya settled and lived in three distinct areas. The South Pacific Coastal Plain, featuring dense rainforests, lots of rain, plentiful wildlife, rich farming soil, and situated in such a way that it developed into a thriving trade network. The Central Highlands, featuring mountains approximately 2,500 feet high, cooler temperatures, fertile volcanic soil, rich deposits of jade, serpentine, obsidian, and basalt. While the highlands had less fresh water uh, than the coast, the deficiency was offset by giant sinkholes filled with fresh water called cenotes. The northern lowlands. Featuring many lakes and rivers, the lowlands were a flat, well-forested area that was rich in limestone and chert. Chert is just another word for flint, in case you were wondering. So, if this were an episode of House Hunters, which of the three areas would you choose and why? I like cooler temperatures, so the highlands would be my choice. Also, I would bet that you could get pretty wealthy trading in all those mining goods. Let's talk about one major trade item in Mesoamerica, and really anywhere volcanoes are prevalent. It's called obsidian. Obsidian is classified as volcanic glass, 
and is produced when lava with a high silica content cools rapidly with minimal crystal growth. The high levels of silica gives the lava a high viscosity and that is what inhibits the growth of the crystals. Obsidian is hard and brittle and is excellent for piercing or cutting, especially flesh. I'm sure that came in handy for ancient peoples that wanted to quickly carve up a kill and get out of the jungle before the jaguars and other predators could show up and ruin their day. It could also be used in weapons like arrowheads, spear tips, and clubs with the sharpened obsidian blades embedded in them. It was reported by the Spanish when they encountered the Aztecs that one such weapon was used on a Spanish horse that had spooked an Aztec warrior. The warrior swung the club and in one stroke lopped the poor animal's head right off. Spanish horses, known as Andalusians, can grow nearly six feet tall and weigh almost 1,200 pounds, with an average neck thickness of about 36 inches. That gives us a diameter of almost 12 inches. That means this warrior on one strike cut through one foot worth of solid muscle and bone to separate the head from that horse's body. The average Aztec was probably five foot five and might have weighed 150 pounds dripping wet, so this feat was only made possible by the sharpness of the obsidian blades on that club. But how sharp is sharp? I mean, we live in the future. Surely our laser-cut steel blades would put primitive obsidian to shame, right? Wrong. Angstrom is a unit of measure that is equal to 100 millionth of a centimeter. It can be used to measure the sharpness of just about anything, but it's commonly used to measure wavelengths of light. In terms of angstroms, the lower the number, the sharper the object. So for example, something measuring 500 angstroms is much sharper than something measuring 1000 angstroms. The high quality laser steel blades that you use to shave with and pay an arm and a leg for at retailers tops out at 400 angstroms. A surgical scalpel, it's closer to 300 angstroms. A honed diamond comes in around 100 angstroms. Any guesses on a properly formed obsidian blade? 30. 30 angstroms for obsidian, thank you very much. That's a little better than three times the sharpness of a honed diamond, the hardest substance that we know of. At risk of putting too fine a point on it, Dr. Lee Green, a professor at the University of Alberta, was part of a research team that set out to demonstrate the sharpness of an obsidian blade when compared to a surgeon's scalpel. In a bit of foreshadowing, microscopic analysis of the two blades showed the obsidian blade as a smooth, continuous line, while the scalpel looked more like a steak knife at high magnification. When cutting the test flesh, I'm hoping it was a cadaver, the team let out an audible gasp when they saw, at very high magnification, the scalpel had essentially ripped and torn the flesh, while the obsidian blade sliced neatly through the skin. And, upon further analysis, they noticed that the obsidian blade had actually sliced individual cells cleanly in two. Now, I'm sure this is more information than you ever wanted on the properties of obsidian, but I felt it was essential that you clearly see why it was so highly valued and regarded as a gift from the gods in many ancient cultures. For me, and the majority of scholars, the Olmecs were the mother culture and heavily influenced everyone around them. Yes, the Olmec likely assembled and developed their early culture with a generous amount of input and ideas from surrounding cultures, but once the Olmecs had their brand, as it were, 
that brand influenced everyone else for millennia to come. The Maya really started developing their chops around the time the Olmec city of La Venta passed its peak and began its decline. Just so you have some bearings on that time period, we're in the neighborhood of about 300 BC. Now, we will focus on three of the major pre-classic cities. Welcome to the city of Takalikaba, located on the Pacific Coastal Plain in Guatemala. The name means standing stones due to the numerous stelae at the site that demonstrate the Mayan lust for creating stelae. Indeed, many Mayan cities would provide ample stelae for archaeologists to excavate and decipher. The city was heavily influenced by the Olmec, probably to the point of resentment, but once the Olmec began to lose power, the city developed distinctly Mayan traits. The pink structure. This is an Olmec-looking public monument with Olmec-styled stelae surrounding it. Once excavated, it revealed the tomb of the Vulture Lord, named by archaeologists for a vulture pendant still affixed to his skeletal chest. He was likely a ruler of some sort, as Mayan glyphs represent royalty with an image of a vulture. He was buried with items from all around Mesoamerica, Olmec jade, local ceramics, pyrite from Oaxaca, and various other items from surrounding regions. The vulture lord was wealthy, well-traveled, and likely a prominent figure at the time. After the fall of Leventa, the surrounding Olmec monuments were destroyed and the pink structure was toppled and buried in a distinctively Mayan structure known as Mound 7. Okay, quick rant. This completely uninspired naming convention really sets me off sometimes. Imagine the scenario. You spent years of research seeking grant money to go out and spend several months at a dig where you uncover mind-blowing ancient artifacts that haven't been seen in millennia. And what do you name them? Mound 7. Stella C. Complex A. Archaeology really needs a marketing team. Back to Takalikaba. Unlike later archaeology, the Mayan marketing team was on point and hard at work. Think about it. We know La Venta was an economic powerhouse and controlled surrounding cultures by wielding that power. In my experience, wielding power over another is seldom polite or welcomed. I wonder if that pink structure and surrounding monuments were a symbol of Olmec power, put there, or mandated to be put there, in the city of Takalikaba. That's big civilization energy, and many cultures do just that to remind the weaker cultures who's the boss. In short, Leventa was so powerful that it was probably oppressive in the expression of that power, and resentment by the weaker party quickly builds in any relationship that is so unevenly matched. Therefore, it's not hard to imagine that when news of Leventa completely vanishing from the Mesoamerican world was heard by the leaders at Takalikaba, they threw off the trappings of their oppressors, destroyed their monuments, and replaced it with their own. Supporting my conspiracy theory is the fact that at this time, the monuments did begin to significantly change and become very distinctly Mayan. Remember the Olmec altars with the cave emergence theme? An altar at Takalikaba during this time, which is roughly the 3rd century BC, was found carved with a Mayan ruler coming out of a crocodile's mouth. It's meant to equate with the Olmec theme, but with Mayan religious symbolism, not Olmec. It seems that in every way, these Maya really wanted to come out from the shadow of the Olmec and just stand on their own for a while. I mean, this had to be brewing for some time. The Maya didn't just hear that Leventa had vanished and said, Hey guys, huddle up. Let's get some ideas for our own culture, huh? 
That's just not how things develop. It had to have been a slow, steady amalgamation of ideas and practices that existed concurrent with Olmec influence and kept just under the surface. I believe that the beginnings of a definitive Mayan culture was already in existence long before the Olmec weakened. And once the Olmecs lost their dominance, the Maya knew exactly how to respond. Takalikaba continued to grow and develop their strong sense of Mayan culture and economic independence through extended trade routes and monument building, including the export of exquisite jade funerary masks and an early ball court. One of the more interesting construction is that of a hydraulic system built somewhere on the back end of the pre-classic era, that's 300 BC to 250 AD. Yes, I realize that's about a 600 year window, but that's the closest dates I could find. The water systems provided fresh water to residential areas and employed varying methods to control the flow of water so everyone who used it enjoyed similar water pressure and flow. They even built settling basins, presumably, to enhance the quality of the water. A settling basin is a structure used to remove suspended solids from water supplies such as silt, pollen, algae, and the like, which enhances water clarity by reducing or eliminating visible pollutants. That's great, we're delivering fresh clean water on the daily, but this is a rainforest. What happens when we get too much water? So glad you asked. The water system was designed to not just be a means to deliver water, but also a way to drain away excessive water from buildings, plazas, and terraces. The Maya knew their stuff, and this isn't even the most impressive city. Our next city was extremely influential in the pre-classic Mayan world, and it was a close trading partner with Takalikaba. Welcome to Kaminalhuyu, one of the largest and most important cities of the pre-classic era. Located in the Guatemalan highlands, it was a relevant city from 1200 BC to 800 AD. That's 2000 years if you're keeping score at home. The name means Hills of the Dead, but after a quick marketing meeting, they probably went with the alternate meaning Hills of the Ancestors, as it had a better response from the focus groups. I'm just kidding. The people that lived here didn't actually call it Kaminalhuyu. Like many sites, that's just a name ascribed by an archeologist using the Quiche Mayan language. Kaminal Huyu was replete with resources and slathered in wealth. Huge deposits of obsidian were the bedrock of their wealth, as well as jade mines, cacao, zapotes, avocados, black beans, salt, fish, pottery, shells, jaguar skins, and exotic plumage, all of which they traded with the Olmec way back when San Lorenzo was still vibrant. After the fall of San Lorenzo and the subsequent rise of Laventa, the people of Kaminalhuyu quickly established strong trade ties with the Olmec people at Laventa too. These guys knew a good customer when they saw one. But what's really interesting is that when Laventa collapsed, Kaminalhuyu burgeoned and became exceptionally wealthy. How does that happen when the chief economic power of the region dissolves? Shouldn't the collapse of Laventa have created a vacuum that sucked the prosperity out of every city it had formerly traded with? Some say that Kaminalhuyu simply absorbed the wealthy inhabitants of Laventa and that external trade was simply replaced by internal trade, but that's just speculation and I have yet to read any evidence of that occurring. What we can say with certainty is that the city was nothing short of a paradise. It was surrounded by volcanoes 
and featured Lake Miraflores in the middle. There was plenty of fertile soil, and the buildings were painted in red cinnabar. By the way, Miraflores means, behold, the flowers. So imagine a lake in the middle of your city with flowering plants all around. The fertile soil yielded unimaginable amounts of corn and cotton, which were excellent trade goods as well. The buildings consisted of homes, but also pyramids, some as tall as 140 feet. There were temples, stele, carved stone heads, tombs, administrative centers, and 12 ball courts. It is believed that they used ball games to settle disputes in lieu of war whenever possible. And I think modern people could learn a little something from that. But wait, there's more. They were well-educated and literate well before other Mayan cities. I mean, not the poor people, of course, but the wealthy and well-connected. The famed Mayan archaeologist Michael Coe, who passed away in 2019, said, The elite of Kaminalhuyu were fully literate at a time when other Maya were just learning that writing existed. But for all of this education, they seem to have made a foolish mistake in 700 BC when they constructed canals and began draining that beautiful lake Miraflores to irrigate their fields, causing a disruption to the water supply of the city. The Maya were not fools, they were desperate. In a paper published by Cambridge University, there is evidence that the pre-classic era began experiencing a drying trend almost a thousand years prior to the canals being built, and it persisted until approximately 1 AD. So, the Maya were backed into a corner and needed to make a decision. Since they weren't getting the water they needed to irrigate those fields properly, and they had several thousand hungry mouths to feed, I would bet they weighed their options very carefully and decided to find another source of drinking water while using the conveniently located lake to irrigate their fields. The population at this time is unclear, but in just one burial mound excavated at the city, archaeologists found the remnants of half a million pottery vessels. There definitely weren't half a million people living there, but it could have easily been well into the tens of thousands. The people that lived at Kaminalhuyu had their preferred gods chiseled into their monuments, the principal bird deity, who it is believed to be Seven Macaw, a god from the Mayan creation story, was among the favorites. Seven Macaw is a symbol of celestial and kingly power, and who doesn't like a guy like that? Other gods depicted are the hero twins and the maze god, both of whom are also in the creation story. And with this being a hub of inter-Mesoamerican trade, they also had a trade god. Now here's where it gets a little dark. Up until now, there are a few depictions at major sites that involve violence. The Olmec didn't depict it at all in their monuments, but now there seems to be a shift. Monument 65 is a carved depiction of three rulers about to sacrifice bound, kneeling, and completely naked victims. Each ruler has two victims, symbolizing twins, and to me, this is disturbing. We haven't talked much about religious imagery yet, but we will when we get to the Popovu, essentially the Mayan Bible, if you will. For now, just know that the twins may represent the hero twins who were beloved by the populace, and Seven Macaw represents the king or ruler. So in the creation story, the hero twins killed Seven Macaw for being too proud, and with Seven Macaw being a ruler's favorite god, well, I think you can see the connection. This favorite story may have been seen as a challenge to a ruler's authority. It sends a strong message when you flip the script and respond by having yourself carved in stone and slaying the hero twins. <laughs>
Stele 10, which is a piece of a once giant throne, is carved with decapitation scenes with a masked ruler dressed as an underworld jaguar holding an axe, executioner style, over a helpless victim. Adding to the imagery is also a depiction of collected and burned blood being offered to the gods. Towards the end of the pre-classic period and into the next era, we will see more and more depictions of bloodletting and sacrifice. From my perspective, I see a gradual increase of, in violence among the Mesoamerican people beginning with the feel-good Olmecs and ending with the utterly brutal Aztecs. I think, as competition for resources increased and the distortion of reality that so much wealth and power concentrated in a few hands brings, the Mesoamerican people were doomed to this unintended consequence of their growing population, and it led to an outrageous loss of life for reasons we just can't fathom today. I will restrict any further discussion on this topic to an episode all its own, in case you frequently listen with younger or more sensitive people. Let's move on to El Mirador. From 600 BC to about 100 AD, the city of El Mirador enjoyed prosperity. Then, like many of these cities, it was suddenly abandoned, but this time at the point of an obsidian blade. The city was reoccupied in the back end of the Classic Era until finally being abandoned forever around 900 AD. This city was completely unknown to the Olmecs and shows no evidence of influence from their culture. One of the first modern-day people to see El Mirador was a pilot flying overhead, a guy by the name of Charles Lindbergh. El Mirador, which means the lookout and refers to the giant pyramid complex called La Danta, is situated in the lowlands where the area is heavily forested and has large deposits of limestone at the mine's disposal. Wonderful. Forests provide wildlife and plants for food, and the limestone is going to come in real handy when we start building things. So far, so good. As the population grew, it became readily apparent that the soil of El Mirador was not suited for intensive farming and was easily exhausted in just a few seasons. To solve this problem, they simply went to the nearby swamplands and transplanted the nutrient-rich soil to El Mirador, making giant farming terraces out of it. To enhance the soil further, they added lime to it, which is ground-up limestone rock, to increase the soil's pH and make it suitable for a variety of crops. The sheer tonnage of material needed to make this work is incalculable, and how they transported it must have been a nightmare in terms of logistics. For a water source, they had the dependable La Jaria River nearby. A Jaria is a fruit-bearing plant native to the area and similar to the papaya. We can imagine the banks of this river flush with these kinds of plants. All right, so what do we know so far? There's a large motivated population with a now steady supply of food and water and a seemingly inexhaustible supply of limestone building material. Let's just say these people had no chill. Ladanta, it means tapir. It's an herbivore that looks like a pig with a short trunk is the largest pyramid ever constructed anywhere in the world in terms of volume. Coming in at over 99 million cubic feet, Ladanta is greater in volume than the Great Pyramid of Giza, which comes in at 92 million cubic feet. Now, before all the Egyptophiles get into a froth, I will concede that the Great Pyramid is taller at 341 feet as compared to Ladanta's 236 feet 
and it was built much, much earlier. Now that cooler heads have prevailed, let's talk about Los Monos and El Tigre, and I don't mean Tiger Woods. El Tigre is another pyramid complex at El Mirador, and it measures 180 feet tall, while Los Monos comes in at 158 feet tall. Each of the three complexes are composed of three pyramids, a large one in the middle and two smaller pyramids flanking the sides. The orientation of these pyramids is aesthetically pleasing and significant in Mayan culture as it reflects an aspect of the creation story where the hero twins affix three hearthstones in the sky to begin the progression of stars and ultimately the beginning of time itself. The three hearthstones are also a functional part of everyday Mayan life as that is the spot in every home where they cook their food, ate, and bonded as a family. Do you see how the hearthstones connect every single person in El Mirador to the gods, family, and the universe? That's some powerful imagery. In addition to the pyramids, there are many other structures and what equivocates to an ancient superhighway called Sakbe. Sakbe means white road, with the white coloring being provided by the limestone with which it was created. This raised stone superhighway links cities to El Mirador as far away as the red sandstone city of El Tintal, some 13 miles to the south, that features similarly sized and orientated pyramids. The white road was up to 100 feet across and seemed to be intended for high volume travel. By the first century AD, El Mirador had a population close to 100,000 people and their demand on the ecosystem had become far too great. Remember the whole area is in a persistent drying period and coupled with the deforestation to make room for food crops, build structures, and get firewood, that meant the rains were not as predictable anymore. Often it would not rain for long periods of time, and then when it did, the now unchecked water would wash silt into the farmland that was highly acidic and would ruin the food. And it wasn't just a problem for El Mirador. As the resources got tight, the people got nasty in the surrounding areas. The El Miradorans had to build fortifications to hold off raiding parties, and in their desperation, they pillaged their own temples and buildings to make them. Some walls were as high as 24 feet, but it was not enough to save El Mirador. At the site, skeletonized human remains were found with obsidian arrowheads still stuck in their chests. The city had been overrun by invaders, but who were they? There was something about those obsidian arrowheads that wasn't quite right. It was dark green, not black, as is usually the case. El Mirador never stood a chance against the technologically advanced and warlike invaders. They had come from the only place where green obsidian is found, a city the Aztecs dubbed the city where gods are born, the city of Teotihuacan. Well, that wraps up what I have for the pre-classic, but be sure to join me again for the next episode on the classic period, where we'll take on three more cities and explore this golden age of the Maya. This series on the Maya looks like it's going to be at least four episodes long before we move on to the Toltec and the Aztec. I presume the Aztec will be three to four episodes long as well. I hope you are enjoying this podcast so far, and if you can, please donate to my cause at paypal.me slash mesoplus that's m-e-s-o-p-l-u-s the response so far has been great 
and I appreciate every listen, share, follow, and donation. Also, we just got a new domain for our website, so it's a lot easier to navigate to. The new web address is www.mesoplus.net. That's M-E-S-O-P-L-U-S dot N-E-T. The website is full of pictures and other content that's great to look at as you listen along to the show. As always, thank you so much for listening to my show, and we'll see you next time here at Mesoamericana Plus.